Today is Friday the 3rd of July. My name is Roslyn and this interview is taking place via Zoom. So just to get started, I'd like to know just a little bit about you and your background. So can you start by telling me your name and just the year that you were born, please? Yeah, uh, my name is Chris White and I was born in 1966. And uh, where did you grow up? Um, <clears throat> sorry. I was born in Glasgow, but I kind of grew up around uh, Barnsley in South Yorkshire and around Bridlington in East Yorkshire. We kind of All moved right. a lot when I was growing up. And what is your profession or working background? Um, I am Citizenship and Participation Officer for Mental Health Foundation these days. So if we start with your involvement, what was your first role within mental health and the arts? Yeah, so I guess for me, um, connections stem from most of the 1990s. I had uh, long periods of uh, hospital admissions. Um, psychiatric hospital admissions uh, on average for three or four months at a time um, and uh, sometimes kind of two or three times a year um, and so when that kind of cycle when that kind of cycle got broken uh, I had had a lot of kind of social disconnect um, and most of my kind of social networks revolved about being a, ho being a hospital inpatient. Um, so kind of when that cycle got broken, not really having a community because I'd spent 10 years, six or seven months of each year in a psychiatric hospital. Uh, so actually kind of, engaging at a community level was really, really difficult. Um, so I uh, was referred to um, some writing groups, uh, some community-based writing groups with an organization at the time called Survivors Poetry Scotland. Um, and over the next, over a kind of five or six year period, had lots of connections with Survivors Poetry Scotland and in fact, from 2003 to it folding in 2007, was a board member. And for two, two years of that, was, I was chairperson of the organization. So we kind of did lots of community-based writing groups, publications. Thank you. And what was your work trying to achieve? Um, and at that time I was a volunteer, um, uh, most of the organization did employ, uh, three staff. The aims were, um, to help support people's recovery, build kind of social networks, uh, in a safe, creative way where people could explore kind of 
who they were, feelings, emotions that might be around in therapeutic but non-clinical type of way? Brilliant. Um, so can you list a couple of the activities that you do within this work? Um, so the organisation uh, twice a year published um, a poetry magazine, uh, Nomad. Um, so Ainley has a couple of those uh, that I've given her. Um, but also we would uh, train people with lived experience to be uh, workshop facilitators. So they would run workshops, um, community-based workshops, uh, writing workshops um, for people with a lived experience. We would also do hospital-based workshops as well, but also um, towards the end of the 1990s, early 2000s, uh, a lot of the, the big psychiatric hospitals saw either total closures or uh, big reduction in the amount of inpatient wards. Um, so with two or three hospitals, we received, we, we applied for uh, Arts Council and, and health funding to capture some people's memories, both staff and patients' memories of uh, life in those hospitals. So one of those publications, again, I think Ailey's got a copy of this one, was Goodbye Woody Lee, which a lot of my hospital admissions were in Woody Lee Hospital. So kind of collecting, archiving some of those kind of memories, but, but from staff as well as patients' perspectives. And can you tell me about some of your favourite memories from this time? Um, I think, you know, particularly with, with, with um, where we were doing publications that like Goodbye Woody Lee. Um, at first, my memories of being a patient in, in a long-term hospital ward uh, had been quite negative. Uh, I'd never planned to be in a psychiatric hospital. It kind of happened really, really suddenly. Um, and then very, very quickly, I kind of got into this cycle of uh, losing liberty and um, being treated in an old style psychiatric hospital in what I thought was a way out in the country. Um, and so that kind of sense of loss of liberty, actually kind of revisiting some of that four or five years later, Actually, there was quite a lot of fun memories in there as well. Um, bearing in mind that part of the reason that uh, I was a hospital inpatient was because I found being out in the community just as scary. You know, so there's that kind of thing of, aha, yeah, my, my, my memories of being in hospital uh, often were negative often felt that I'd lost liberty and didn't have any kind of power or self-control. 
but actually when I was in the community and I was struggling with identity and uh, feeling safe and feeling vulnerable, uh, those, those feelings existed anyway. Um, that's not saying that hospital was a nice place to be. Wherever I was at that point wasn't a nice place, but it did offer moments where you would do, uh, you felt good and there were other people around. And so kind of revisiting some of that and kind of going, you know, actually there was a sense of community. It might not have been the community that I would have chosen, but there was a sense of community when, when for me, community didn't exist elsewhere. And what impact does your work have on your own mental health? Um, I think for me, it helped break that cycle of hospital admissions. Um, prior to going into, prior to my first hospital admission, I had always worked. Um, I always felt that I had some sort of purpose and then all of that kind of is taken away. Um, reconnecting and going through a process of uh, attending groups, becoming a volunteer, taking on some, some responsibilities, actually being supported by the organization to move back into um, work, uh, helped me find a, a different purpose. Okay, can we talk a little bit about public attitudes? Um, so when you first began your work, how was mental health viewed? Um, I think, you know, we are talking about the kind of late 1990s, early 2000s. Um, there were a lot of hospital closures um, and um, within communities that we would generally kind of say had lots of inequalities anyway, um, people were being rehoused. Um, so uh, I was, I'd, I'd lost my tenancies uh, during the times that I w w was in hospital. So kind of on discharge, uh, got allocated to council house, local authority housing, uh, in not the best areas of, of, of the city. And that was quite common. Lots of people found themselves in, in those areas. So that did create some tensions within communities because folks would know who the houses were that, that the mad folk got put in. Um, and particularly if there were times where, where in, in that I was still having some hospital admissions. So there's the mad folk getting taken to hospital in the ambulance. Um, and uh, so coming back from hospital, getting discharged from hospital, back into a community that wasn't your community anyway, you, you don't have a choice about where you got allocated housing and feeling kind of uh, different and stigmatized 
and then having these kind of experiences where people saw you taken away um, was always very, very difficult. Um, and, but there was kind of a, a societal kind of expectation, expectation that, well, actually that's what happens. Um, that's where you get rehoused. And of course you're going to be stigmatized. You just have to get on with it. How often did people um, talk about mental health, their own and, and, and more generally? Um, in, in, again, you know, I kind of had to separate bits of my life so where I was with folks that hadn't experienced illness um, or uh, had, hadn't experienced hospital admissions, then don't say anything about your mental health. Um, and that was quite difficult where you do have hospital admissions and I would go to the pub two or three times a week because you don't have a social circle. Uh, so you go to the pub and then, you know, you don't go to the pub for four months and then get discharged. And folks go, where have you been? There's very few places that you can go for four months. Uh, if you're unemployed and living in um, a poorer area of a city, you know, it's kind of, did you go to prison or did you go to a, a psychiatric hospital? <laughs> they, 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 they were kind of, so that was, that, was, that was kind of difficult. So you tried not having conversations in, in those in, about mental health in that sense. And then touching base with um, folks who had been in hospitals uh, in community-based groups and such, there was a whole different language. We we would we we would use a, a very kind of uh, clear mad language, and and would talk about kind of experiences to together um, that you you just couldn't have elsewhere. And working in mental health these days, actually, I couldn't have very many of those conversations today because there's kind of an insider language would you say that attitudes to mental health have changed and if so has your work contributed to this i think that on one level um it's a lot more acceptable to talk about some aspects of mental health um, we can talk about um, anxiety we can talk about depression um, I think that increasingly uh, it's okay to talk about uh, experiences of people that we might know who have had uh, a bereavement through suicide um, However, I think 
society still struggles with hearing stories of severe mental illness, um, of stories where people might be experiencing psychosis. Um, there's still kind of a, a fear around um, people will be dangerous and people still get very, very uncomfortable uh, at conversations where someone may say, I'm feeling suicidal. Um, and also the, the other thing that, that's around as well is whilst it might be more okay to talk about some levels of mental ill health, lots of people within our communities haven't actually caught up with, with a compassionate language. Uh, so people will try say the right thing and try say supportive things, uh, good intentions, but sometimes it might not come across that way. So there's a kind of yes and no, but also we kind of have judgment calls within that as well. So if, you know, uh, if people have an addiction issue or an alcohol issue um, as well, uh, or people uh, aren't working, then there might be some additional judgments. Yeah. At the time um, of your work, what kind of arts and mental health community existed, if at all? There was actually quite a strong community because um, of, and quite an active community. There was lots and lots of funding um, because of large scale hospital closures. Um, so uh, part of that, part, part of the hospital closure program throughout the 1990s was that money was made available to resettle people in communities. Um, and that went on for, you know, from the mid nineties till about 2005. Um, and then started to dry up. Well, we've closed the hospitals. We've got people resettled in communities. Uh, we can start withdrawing funding. Um, so that, you know, you, you would have most, you know, lots of areas around Scotland would have a writing group, would have an art therapy group, um, out with clinical settings. Um, there were mental health arts organisations out with mental health service provider organisations. Um, but once the kind of hospital closure programme had, had kind of finished, uh, those levels of funding kind of dried up as well. So would you say then that the, the hospital closures on balance were more of a positive or a negative um, force for kind of mental health? And... Oh, without a doubt, um, hospital closures were a big positive. Um, in, you know, when, when we were looking at getting with, 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 with some of the, the stories around uh, people who had spent um, 30, 40 years uh, within a psychiatric hospital, quite often young women. Uh, young women were much more likely than men to have experienced uh, 
long-term hospital admissions often for um, very obscure reasons of, um, and, 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 and quite literally, you know, kind of women coming home late and, and not doing what their father asked, um, getting admitted into a psychiatric hospital in, in the 1960s um, because they were doing what teenage girls did and getting discharged in the late 1990s um, with very severe mental illnesses caused by that kind of their, their, their life experience. Um, but also, you know, kind of my, my first hospital admission was in the uh, early 1990s and um, getting admitted to a psychiatric hospital, uh, I hadn't realized actually how disabling that was. Um, that very, very quickly, if you have more than one or two psychiatric hospital admissions, and if there are any length of stay, um, you very, very quickly start losing confidence, start losing social skills, start becoming institutionalized. And also from a, from a community level, you know, having those long-term hospitals there where, where people could easily get admitted to hospital meant communities didn't have to deal with issues within communities. You can just kind of lock people away somewhere. Well, so that leads me on to my next question. When you were doing your work out with hospitals, what kind of places would you meet in? Um, often libraries. Um, one, one, one of the good things is, is uh, suddenly at the time, uh, we had lots of public libraries um, that were often very, very quiet. Um, because uh, libraries are underused as, as community venues. Um, most libraries also kind of have bookable meeting rooms. Um, so, so we'd use libraries, um, community centers, um, and uh, on occasion, would do hospital-based groups, but with hospital-based groups, we tried using parts of hospitals that, that weren't as clinical a setting. Uh, so if a hospital had a, a cafe area, uh, using that rather than a hospital group room, because you know, however, however you kind of change a hospital group room, it's still a hospital group room. <laughs> It's still somewhere where people go for some kind of clinical intervention and therefore kind of having an, an you know, group rooms might be used sometimes for therapeutic things like relaxation and such, but they're clinical relaxation as opposed to if you went to community-based yoga group. Um, so kind of trying to use something, parts of hospitals that were not used for other clinical purposes. 
The the communities that you worked with, uh, did they change over time? Um, yes. In in yes and no. Um, I think one of one of the issues that we had at the time is that um, people who came into those art programs in the the kind of mid nineteen nineties uh, were the people who stayed with those programs through till sort of the the early two thousands two thousand and five and such. However, that made it really difficult for younger people to come into that group. So, so the people within, within the setting aged 10 years. And they also kind of came from a different psychiatric background. They came from a psychiatric background where you could just get admitted to hospital. Um, and uh, whereas a younger age group didn't really experience that and and also, you know, I think at, at the time I was kind of uh, in my early 40s. Uh, there's a huge difference. It doesn't seem that now. But when I kind of think back to, to my 40s and also when I think back to my 20s, there's a massive difference between someone who's 40 and someone who's 20. Um, so... Same people continued, but it was very hard for new people to come into that. How how did you encourage people, um, particularly those who've got lived experience of mental health, to come into that? Again, you know, it was kind of uh, looking at providing uh, workshops where those people tended to go. Um, so one of the kind of big changes, uh, certainly within Glasgow workshops, um, was uh, down where the street that goes from St Enoch Square down to the river, uh, there used to be an LGBTQ Glasgow centre there. Uh, that, that building's no longer there. Um, but running groups within uh, the LGBTQ centre um, because and that was quite challenging for lots of people um, because mental illness and being LGBTQ were kind of separated uh, even though within an LGBT community, there are very, very high rates of mental ill health for a, a straight mental health group. It was kind of difficult uh, for, for, for that group to kind of go, well, why, why are we going into an LGBT centre uh, to work with, with, with younger people? Um, but actually, that was that 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 was the kind of natural progression to to make to 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 reach uh, people who 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 felt separated. 
So would you say there was a, a strong resistance to maybe older heterosexual people working with younger LGBT? Yeah, I mean, you, you, you kind of got two stigmatised groups at the time coming, to, coming together. Um, you know, so, so there, there was, and, and there, there was kind of professional mistrust around uh, what would happen um, if, if you mix up an older, largely straight mental health community, which wasn't actually the case anyway. A lot of those people who, who, who were active in arts, arts and writing groups uh, who might have been um, at the time in their late 40s and late 50s, late 50s uh, were gay, but had also grown up in a society where you kind of hid that away anyway. Well, how, how did that type of working together with the the two greatest arts um, and what you were making? I think, it, you know, it, it kind of gave a, a different vibrancy. Um, quite often, uh, when we were working with, with uh, a younger group um, and, and a group of people who, who were uh, less inhibited, um, created often with, within writing groups or, or within uh, the kind of writing performances, um, a vibrancy that actually brushed off and built confidence for, for uh, people who, who might have been more reserved. Um, and it also will, uh, allowed for um, a more kind of Know, an, an older mental health group who might have had to hide some of their kind of uh, extrovert tendencies. Um, working with an LGBT group, uh, it was okay to kind of be different, to kind of go, well, actually, uh, I do want to wear different clothes or dye my hair or uh, some of the, some of the behaviors that in the past uh, might have got people uh, a hospital admission um, actually starting to feel normalized in, in, in a less judgmental group. Um, so in terms of the audience for your work, can you tell me a bit about the people you were trying to reach, like their age range, and the kind of messages that you were trying to get across? I think, um, we're, particularly with Survivors Poetry Scotland, we, we uh, were predominantly aiming at uh, people who, who might have been considered might might be considered working age. I struggle with the concept of working age these days, particularly when 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 that's kind of such a fluid thing for people. Um, but you know, an adult group uh, under sixty five, um, 
because again, we still kind of, you know, in, around 2000, uh, where, when people got beyond the age of 65, services kind of made them go somewhere else. So, yeah, and, and the, same, the same with people under 21. People under 21 lived in one place. And once you got above 65, you know, even if you had be, even if you'd spent all of your life in and out of psychiatric hospitals, you suddenly started going to different hospitals. Um, and, and, and going to dementia wards instead of psychiatric wards, even though it was still a mental, you, you know, you, your admission was around your mental illness. Um, so that kind of middle, middle group that, that, that services kind of worked around, were designed around. Um, but trying to create safe environments, safe spaces that, that were out with the clinical, the clinical norms, but also to give people safe space within communities as well, because people were kind of coming out into very threatened, threatening communities often. Yeah. So how did you make these people um, aware of the work that you were doing? Um, we, so we would do, uh, some, uh, promotion within hospital settings. We, we would, we, we would, uh, work with community mental health teams, um, and also kind of make, make uh, information available within uh, community settings, um, libraries, GP services, uh, and then occasionally kind of uh, doing, doing um, music or art performances in community cafes. Um. Who funded the work that you were doing and how easy was it to access that funding? I touched on this earlier of, of at the time, actually, it was quite easy because as part of the hospital closure programmes, then uh, specific funding had been set up to support people um, re-establish themselves in the community. Uh, following hospital closures. Um, so there was this kind of protected pot of money that only uh, people working with uh, people working with within mental health and working with uh, a group of people who who had had hospital discharges. Um, but around so 2005, that money started to dry up. And of course, by 2007, um, we funding in the UK pretty much ceased on lots of levels um, because of uh, a financial crash. So, so what had once around 2000 kind of funding community-based arts programs for people with experience of long-term hospital admissions was seen as a necessity to help people resettle um by 2007 um then it, it was seen very much 
differently and it was no longer a necessity it was something that you could cut so just building from that what kind of reactions to the, to the work that you were doing did audiences give you and did you have any specific successes that you'd like to talk about um i think you know that there's uh, all of the publications that that we 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 did at the time um so having having a, a, a magazine that 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 uh was published twice a year um for sort of 10 years uh is a massive achievement of of uh survivor writing work um also you know kind of uh some of the people that i i am still in touch with from from uh, back then uh, went back into employment they they went back to university and and did degrees and and uh, finished off degrees that they 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 broken in younger in earlier life um they are a group of people who one of one of the the kind of questions about closure of long-term hospitals was but how will people survive um and actually lots of us did lots of you know i i i remember i i have a i had a psychiatric assessment um around 1994 1995 uh and the psychiatrist in the assessment wrote uh that um, I would never be able to uh, completely look after myself independently without heavy reliance on services and frequent hospital admissions. Um, that's not been the case for 20 years. Um, and for lots of other people that I know, that's not been the case. Uh, people who who we we thought or society kind of thought uh needed to have those hospitals needed to have that heavy reliance on services uh wouldn't be able to either survive without hospital interventions or indeed wouldn't be able to kind of go back to work go back into relationships get married have children um have the kind of normal kind of dreams that and aspirations that people have actually a lot of those people did and and, and they're probably bigger successes than um any kind of publications that we did can you tell us a bit about some of the challenges that your work faced um so particularly writing organizations poetry organizations ar around that period in scotland there was survivors of poetry scotland um there there across the uk there were lots of survivors poetry organizations 
um, Survivors Poetry Leeds, Survivors Poetry Bristol, you know, there was this kind of big movement around survivor poetry. Um, one, of, one, of, one of the difficulties uh, or one of the challenges um, was that uh, it was a community that saw lots and lots of deaths through suicide. Um, so, you know, there were people who struggled uh, with, with kind of coming out of a hospital environment uh, who uh, took their own lives. Um, there were also people who, you know, lots of us took kind of leadership roles. We, we, we led organizations, we, we, we kind of took seats on boards um, and for, for, you know, none of us were, I, I guess lots of people were quite idealistic um, and uh, no real concept of uh, how, how much of a challenge it is to, to be responsible for an organization, um, to have responsibilities for staff, to feel that if you didn't get money to run a group, you were letting other people down. Um, so, you know, and, and you know, we, we, we were survivor organizations by definition, we have a much higher kind of mortality rate through suicide. Um, so those pressures, I think all of us will, 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 will know from, from that period uh, for various reasons, seven or eight people who, who were active within survivor movements who took their own lives. Um, and when I talk to people who, who haven't had mental health experiences or haven't had that, that survivor movement experience, you tend not to use, you know, survivor movements is a term that, that very much kind of existed in the late 1990s, started drifting away, uh, and, and, and you very rarely hear it these days. It was there was a heavy cost. Thank you. Um, moving on to the last section now, why do you think it's important that mental health is covered through the arts? Um, and are there any ways that you think arts have contributed to the way that we view mental health more generally? Yeah, I mean, on lots of levels, I think, you know, um, I remember kind of growing up in, in, in the 1970s, uh, 1980s, uh, where the only time kind of mental illness was seen on TV was in uh, movies like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and such, um, or The Shining, and, and so heavily, heavily stigmatizing um, no kind of uh, 
soap operas, for example, featured any mental illness, um, and and so you know we, we, within uh, film and television, we have seen much more normalising of mental illness. Um, at its best, television and, and film have been able to educate and challenge through, through what essentially is an entertainment format, um, but have, have been able to put messages directly into um, people's sitting rooms, um, have been able to kind of use that to uh, put out better positive messages. Um, and then going on from that, we're then uh, visual arts, performing arts, um, of, of being able to, to highlight um, some of the challenges of, of mental ill health. Um, but I think at that that has worked best at uh, a very small scale community level. So some of the arts, you know, some some of the the, the local community centres, community venues uh, that might have struggled to continue to be funded to be used um, have been able to reinvent themselves as as a community asset that's able to support people rather than communities not being able to support people and needing hospitals far away to support people how would you like the relationship between mental health and the arts in scotland to develop over the next five to ten years again you know I think we we put an awful lot of emphasis onto uh, clinical treatment or um, social care uh, or clinical support, um, which is very high cost um, and is often not supportive of recovery. Um, whereas seeing arts funding as uh, enabling and building and, and, and kind of supporting growth and strength, um, particularly at a time where, you know, Funding for, for any community base, for, for, for any community is increasingly a challenge. Uh, our health budget is massive. Uh, our social care budget is massive. Uh, and that's not going to change. So looking at ways that we can better promote independence and uh, help people feel as though they have a place to belong um for me seems a better use of public funds 
that than some of the programs that we see that you know, might exist for five years and, and then lose funding, but haven't actually changed anyone's life very much. That's brilliant, thank you. Is there anything else that you want to say or anything that we've not touched on um, that you'd like to add? No, I think we've covered a lot. <laughs>